When we talk about fundamentalism, there's so much ignorance around the idea of what it means to be a Mormon fundamentalist. The word has become sort of this pejorative for the LDS people. I know it certainly was when I grew up. And yet the word is also a badge of honor to so many others. We see a huge movement towards fundamentalism, and that is to say what some see as living the true fundamentals of the gospel. But the word gets thrown out a lot, and it's conflated often with extremism. And we need to note that not all fundamentalists are extremists, even though the word is used interchangeably. It's likely because most fundamentalists of any faith usually try to uphold a literal, strict view of scripture and religious requirement. We've all heard the stories in the news. We all know where uh, some radical religious extremists end up. But unlike larger Christianity or Islam, Mormonism is still so new, so these fundamentals of Mormonism are really up to interpretation. Because I view Mormonism as such an American religion, I think it's safe to say that it is also really just a reflection of larger American culture. I'm not the only one who said this. Scholars have been saying this for a long time. Uh, The Mormon church is just a reflection of American culture. I would also say in so many ways, Mormonism is also a reaction to the American movement. So take, for example, the 1970s. If we look at the politics of that decade, we see a lot of unrest. Continuing on from the 1960s, there's this whole awakening of the modern civil rights movement. We have social movements that are springing up from this time period. There's full equity for African Americans um, that are being fought for. And, And Native Americans are having these big resistance movements Women and gays and lesbians are fighting for full political rights at this time. Uh, There's other things going on, like in 1971. How many people know what happened to the 26th Amendment? How many people know what the 26th Amendment is? Uh, It is ratified, allowing 18-year-olds to vote. And America had already made it to the moon once, so the space program, if you'll permit me this terrible pun, really takes off. Showing the world that maybe the unimaginable is attainable. Don't forget, it's in 1975 that Bill Gates founds Microsoft. Changes the world. So, 1970s are really a time of great opportunity, but it's also a great time of tumult and horror. Vietnam was in this decade. The Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, was shot down, thanks in large part to the Mormons. The Mormon church had a huge Uh, part to play in this. This is where we have Sonia Johnson, who's a Mormon feminist who's excommunicated for fighting for this. Uh, Gay rights icon Harvey Milk is murdered in 1978. And if that's not enough, we have a lot of our American music icons who die of drug overdoses, Janis Joplin, Elvis Presley, and along with a lot of other, other great musicians. So there's like this political expansion happening and equal rights happening, but there's a lot of fear and um, this political explosion towards social movements. And out of this, a sort of new right movement begins to materialize. And as this new right movement grows into a politically conservative, cohesive group of thought, they sort of mobilize around these ideas of the traditional family values. Now, remember, the nation had experienced deep patriotic loyalty and unity after World War II. 
So they would have seen that time as coming together after such horrors of World War II. So many people died. They sort of retrench into this family values. And, you know, 30 years later, this generation that grew up as children then want to return to that as what they see as family values. But unlike the unity and political patriotic pride after World War II, this generation is now experiencing government corruption. The Watergate scandal and the actions of President Richard Nixon really shakes the faith and the trust of the people that they would have had in believing in the federal government. So this decade, we see a lot of violent protests, two assassination attempts on President Ford. Uh, There's an author named Brian Burrow who wrote a book about this time period called Days of Rage, which talks about how even the left radicalized as a response to the growing new right movement. There were bombings and kidnappings and shootings and lots of talk of revolution during this time. Americans were really growing dissatisfied and distrustful of their leaders across the board, whatever side that they were on. And each of them responded in the context of their own understanding and their own life experiences. So the left were who felt like they were marginalized already and were fighting for marginalized groups really radicalizes in some violent social movements and the, and the right who uh, wants to return to these family values and sees the left as threatening that also retreats into their violent reactions. So it should be no surprise that Mormonism followed suit in so many ways. I already mentioned Sonia Johnson and the ERA movement in the 1970s, but uh, the 1970s start off with Joseph Fielding Smith ushering in the church, and he's the son of Joseph F. Smith. And, you know, when he is called as an apostle in 1910, he's already accused of nepotism because, you know, he's his father's son getting called into this. And he would have cut his teeth defending his father's positions on plural marriage, publishing uh, Blood Atonement and the Origin of Plural Marriage in 1905, and the Origin of the Reorganized Church, the Questions of Succession, I think in 1910, somewhere around that time. He had 60 years as a company man when he takes the reins of the church and leads them into this new decade. And he would only be prophet for about two years. And then he'd be followed by a very short tenure of Harold B. Lee, who sort of shocks the whole church when he dies because he's succeeded by Kimball, Spencer W. Kimball, and Kimball's much older than Harold B. Lee. But, you know, in Harold B. Lee's short time, um, he did do some things. He was very involved politically In 1954, he was part of a council of other apostles that were formed to help push a political referendum through, asking for a one-senator-only policy. And so this whole idea that the church is never involved in politics is historically just inaccurate. The church has always been involved in politics. As long as it's been around, it's been involved in politics. I'm going to link to a dialogue article you can read that that gives more information about that. But then, of course, we have the famous LDS leader of the 1970s, Spencer W. Kimball. He would take the church, the LDS church, in all sorts of new and interesting directions. And from so he he gets put in 1973, and from then on out, he would he would transform the LDS, the modern LDS church. He would say publicly in his 1974 October conference talk entitled "God Will Not Be Mocked." Quote. Again, we're approaching an election. This is most important to us. We urge you to study the platforms and acquaint yourself with the candidates. Then pray to the Lord for guidance and go to the polls and vote. We warn you against the so-called polygamy cults, 
which would lead you astray. Remember the Lord brought an end to this program many decades ago through a prophet who proclaimed the revelation to the Lord, to the world. People abroad who will deceive you and bring you much sorrow and remorse have nothing to do with those who would lead you astray. It is wrong and sinful to ignore the Lord when he speaks. He has spoken strongly and conclusively. We urge you to teach your children honor and integrity and honesty. Is it possible that some of our children do not know how sinful it is to steal? It is unbelievable the extent of vandalism, thievery, robbery, stealing. Protect your family against it by proper teaching. Brothers and sisters, we teach all of our people to be loyal. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, and in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Be loyal and true. I'll link to where you can get that, that talk. Kimball would really help to codify the new right sentiment. He would respond to a lot of the issues of the civil rights movement, in my opinion, by retreating back to what he saw as scriptural basis for the Lamanite doctrine as a way to sort of reconcile these tensions. You know, he's famously known for believing that uh, converting the Native Americans was really important and um, we could help make their skin whiter and bring them out instead of, you know, marching in the streets for political equity, the gospel would somehow liberate some people of color. In, he helped the missionary program grow significantly. When he started, there was around 17,000 missionaries in the field, and when he takes over, it swells to about 27,000. He started a lot of the groundwork to get temples in communist areas like the Freeburg Temple. He spoke often against communism and the evils of the Red Scare, which revitalized a fear, in my opinion, and suspicion amongst LDS church leaders, we, we sort of go through the communist scare again in the LDS church. We have a lot of changes. There's two additions added to the Pearl of Great Price, but in 1981, they're removed to become DNC 137 and DNC 138. Kimball also radically reorganizes a lot of the priesthood structure in the Quorum of the 70s, and, and you might know this in 1980, that's when we moved to the three-hour block in the LDS church. It's really impossible to list all the changes Kimball made, but there were many And probably the most radical change was the inclusion of African-American males to the priesthood and the allowance of black men and black women into the temple. Just when I think I have it all tidy again, something changes. This should be a lesson to me and to all of you. I thought I was starting to get a handle on Mormon fundamentalism. There's the FLDS and Centennial and the LeBarons and the Kingstons and the UB and the TLC, and it's nice and cleaned up and tidy in my head. I can tell which groups do what and who lives where and who's in charge of who. But the 1970s brought out an entirely new wave of fundamentalism, one that, as I learn more about it, just shows how messy Mormonism is. I mean, Mormonism is completely messy. It's just like this big tangled bowl of spaghetti. This strand of Mormon fundamentalism that I'm talking about mirrors larger American politics. 
a lot of these groups that we're going to be talking about are asking for revolutions of their own, and sometimes they did so violently. Many of these movements that started in the 1970s turned violent by the 1980s. Everyone knows of the Mark Hoffman forgery bombings, but perhaps what is less known, at least was less known to me, was the homeschool standoff of John Singer that led to a gun battle with police and John Singer being shot and killed, of Robert Ray Black claiming to bring tear gas and a shotgun into a courthouse, of Adam Swap taking in 50 pounds of dynamite to a stake center in Marion, Utah and blowing the thing up, of LeBaron hitless and blood atonement murders, of the Lafferty brothers murdering for their beliefs. It was a time of extreme political conservatism, but you mix that with strangely and paradoxically with this anti-government sediment of underground bunkers and signs of the times and last days of anti-communist, anti-capitalist, anti-tax, anti-equal rights, anti-sitting around and waiting for God to fill in the gap sort of time. The entire movement of fundamentalism ushered in a new age for doctrine, belief, and behavior for God's kingdom on earth in LDS church and elsewhere. In the next few episodes, I'm going to introduce you to some of the men involved and, where possible, the women who helped make it happen. Men whose names you might not have ever heard of. Alex Joseph, Coley Christensen, Tom Green, Dwayne Hafen, Robert Ray Black, Fred Collier, John Singer, Adam Swap. Names that you might not know because they're not Warren Jeffs or related to pastel dresses and fishtail braids. This is a different kind of Mormon fundamentalism entirely and one that still exists today and has a lot of momentum today and is crossbreeding with a lot of interesting new fundamentalist groups. So first, I'm going to interview my friend Moroni Jessup. He's a Latin fundamentalist who has been excommunicated from several groups and who has loose associations with these men. From there on out, we will have several episodes diving deeper into these neo-Mormon fundamentalist movements. And I think you'll find, like I'm finding that it is going to be a fascinating, surprising, and certainly not tidy ride. So I hope you enjoy. Okay, I'd like to welcome back Moroni Jessup, who has become a good friend of mine to the program. Moroni, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Lindsay. Where are you coming to us from today? I'm at home uh, in Concho, Arizona right now, my, my ranch in rural eastern Arizona. It sounds better than last time. I think last time we interviewed you, we had to have the generator on. I, I can't hear it this time. Yeah, I, I'm not running the generator. Fortunately, during the summer, our solar panels give us a little more electricity, so I don't don't really don't really need the generator. Well, I appreciate you coming on because we're going to get into an area of fundamentalism that I really didn't even know existed until I started meeting you and meeting a few other people, particularly from the AUB or what I would call more modern Mormon fundamentalists. And it's interesting when I learn something new because I, you know, I think that I know that there all there is to generally know about the fundamentalist groups, and then I sort of lift up this rock, and I had no idea how many things were going on under there. So we're going to be talking about 
really the 1970s, which becomes this hotbed for Mormon fundamentalists and independents. And Moroni is going to walk us through some people that you've probably never heard about. And it's going to kick off this little mini series that we're going to do to finish up the summer. And then we're going to dive into each of these different figures in fundamentalist history individually in upcoming episodes. But Moroni had invited me to meet uh, a man named Robert Ray Black, who I had heard sort of tangentially, but didn't know a lot about. And we went to his home up in Clearfield and interviewed him. And so we're going to be playing that uh, interview coming up so you can have more context for that. But Moroni, why don't you start us off at the beginning um, where these sort of branches come out? And then I want to talk about why the 1970s become sort of a hotbed for this. Sure. Um, I want to point out, first of all, that uh, I'm by no means an expert on uh, the LeBaron line of authority, but I've had some associations with them over the past 10 or 15 years. So I know just a little bit about it. And, you know, our meeting with Robert uh, Black was actually really good because I've known Robert online for close to 15 years, but that was my first time actually meeting him face to face. And um, he, uh, traces his authority, uh, you know, a lot of the LeBarons trace their authority all the way back to Benjamin F. Johnson. And for those of you who know church history, Benjamin F. Johnson was a member of the church from the days of Kirtland. He was just a young 13-year-old boy when he became involved with Joseph Smith and the Mormon movement in Kirtland. He moved with them um, all the way over to Nauvoo, uh, when he was in his early 20s, it was said that he was kind of like the bosom buddy of Joseph Smith, that they liked to joke and laugh with each other. And he was one of the first people that uh, Joseph Smith confided the teachings of plural marriage to. Uh, Joseph Smith actually approached Benjamin F. Johnson about marrying one of his sisters. And uh, Benjamin F. Johnson's response was, if you were doing this in any way to to uh, disgrace my sister, I'm going to kill you. Benjamin F. Johnson was actually convinced of the truthfulness of plural marriage. As the Nauvoo Doctrine was basically the groundworks were laid for that, uh, Joseph took Benjamin F. Johnson as one of his confidants and taught him about sealing, taught him about a lot of the eternal principles of, of the endowment and uh, showed him the garment and and expounded the second anointing to him. And uh, you know, he Joseph Smith had a lot of confidence in Benjamin F. Johnson and taught him a lot of these doctrines. Well, for all intents and purposes, Benjamin F. Johnson went to Salt Lake, stayed faithful to Brigham Young, stayed faithful to the church till his dying day. Then you have his grandson, which is uh, Alma Dayer LeBaron, who uh, in the 1920s started claiming that his uh, grandfather, Benjamin F. Johnson, had received keys of the priesthood, had received special blessings and special ordinances directly under the hands of the prophet Joseph Smith, and that Benjamin F. Johnson had passed these uh, keys, which in essence dealt with patriarchal priesthood, onto his uh, grandson, Alma Deir LeBaron. And in turn, Alma Deir LeBaron passed these same blessings on to several of his sons. And I, I have to point out that they were all living down in Mexico at this time. So his sons were Ervil LeBaron, which, you know, we, we know infamously as, uh, as uh, a murderer and a cult figure. And uh, he was the one who orchestrated the death of Ruin Allred in the, in the AUB. 
but then he had uh, other sons that were were not quite so eccentric, not so quite out there, like Joel uh, LeBaron, Alma LeBaron, Ross LeBaron. You know, I, I have to point out that all of these men at this point in time, through the 1940s and the early 1950s, were part of the general fundamentalist movement that had broken off from the church that included the followers of Lauren Woolley. They were all kind of like one big group back then. And uh, around the 1950s, they broke off in Mexico and in Salt Lake and formed their own church, which they called the Church of the Firstborn, which uh, has obvious references in the Doctrine of Covenants. So uh, after they broke off, it seemed like all of the sons started contending about which one uh, held higher priesthood. Some of them stayed with certain of the brothers and others broke off and formed their own organization. And, and uh, of course, a lot of the, the bulk of them stayed with Joel LeBaron in Mexico. And I'm, I'm not really going to get into that, but what's of particular interest to us is Ross LeBaron. Now, Ross started teaching things like second anointing and fullness of priesthood and, and priesthood was patriarchal. And that, so Ross LeBaron, you know, he really didn't have a formally organized church or group, so to speak, in the same manner that his brother Joel did, but he started taking men under his wing and started teaching them doctrines that had been passed down to him from Benjamin F. Johnson and from Alma Dare LeBaron. And, uh, among some of these men were people that uh, whose names you might recognize, like Fred C. Collier, who has uh, been prolific in writing a lot of early church history books and, and, and the like. And there was other men like uh, Dwayne Hafen, Robert Ray Black, Tom Green, who was in the media back in the 1990s. And uh, all of these men received tutelage under Russell Barron. And, and Russell Barron, you know, there it's been said that he lived quite meagerly, that at times he lived in a shed with a dirt floor. He was an eccentric figure. He believed in UFOs and all this sort of thing, but he was generally regarded, unlike his brother Ervil, to be fairly harmless. Anyway, he passed on ordinances to a lot of these men, uh, and we're talking like uh, this was in the 1970s. You know, I think that some of them had received their blessings like Fred Collier in the 60s. A lot of these men, under Ross's tutelage, received blessings, and they really weren't a group in the sense of the AUB or anything, but uh, they uh, started meeting later in what they called the Council of World Patriarchs. A lot of them uh, worked together, uh, met as families, met in conferences. This is still hard for me as an LDS girl to understand any other authority dynamics and priesthood that aren't you know, purely hierarchical yeah. set up after the LDS way. So what did the structure of this council look like? Well, I, I, I never actually uh, attended one of their meetings, but I had a, a very close friend to me who did, and he went to one of their meetings in Victorville, California. And, you know, it has this grandiose name, you know, uh, Council of World Patriarchs, and he goes, and it's a living room full of guys sitting in a circle. Sad to say, there was this same dynamic that, that uh, creeped into those who followed Ross LeBaron as it had previously in Ross's, Ross's family, you know, the struggle for the struggle for leadership, you know, uh, basically a lot of these guys started one-upping each other and, you know, claiming that their 
their priesthood claim was greater than somebody else's priesthood claim. And that, that seemed to be kind of like a, uh, a common thread that ran through that. Now, Robert Black became of particular interest to me because he was very prevalent online when I first started, started uh, discussing the gospel on the internet uh, a decade ago. And, you know, he was, he also is kind of an eccentric and uh, controversial figure. He's always been controversial, no matter where he goes. And, uh, you know, he, he and I had a lot of internet arguments, and a lot of it circulated around his claim that the AUB, and I have to point out that I trace my priesthood lineage through the AUB, that the AUB didn't really understand temple ordinances or things like the second anointings until he, Robert, taught the AUB leadership about them. He, he uh, sat down and he taught them to Owen Allred, Joe Thompson, and others in the AUB council who, you know, I guess I should backtrack and say that the AUB didn't start doing any kind of endowment work until the early 1980s. Previous to that, they used to send a lot of their children to the mainstream church to receive their endowments. And if they weren't able to go into the LDS church to receive their endowments, they just didn't receive them. A lot of them didn't even understand the endowment. Some of them had received their endowments in the 1920s and then had been excommunicated and hadn't been through a temple ever since. So Robert comes along and he has a lot of this understanding that he gleaned off of uh, Ross LeBaron. You know, I don't know why that threatened me that, you know, that the leadership that I had looked up to hadn't really understood these ordinances until until Robert came along. But now I've, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, even though his name is probably not very well known to people inside of the AUB, they owe him quite a deal because of his contribution to the ordinances that they now have. He brought an understanding to them. And so unwittingly, you know, he's, he's uh, very much a figure that should be that should be applauded. Okay, so let me ask you about that. So you talk about the AUB. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but really the reason why also the AUB starts doing ordinances is because in 1978, the LDS church allowed black people into their temple. That's part of it, right, too? That's exactly the reason that they started. They start after post-1978, they started questioning whether the ordinances in the LDS temple were even valid or not. And up to that point, it really hadn't occurred to them to do endowments on their own. Whereas through the LeBarons, they had been they had been doing this sort of thing from the beginning. Okay, so talk to me about that then. What what were they doing? What does the endowment look like when you're not doing it in an LDS temple? Well, that was what they were trying to figure out then. What happened... In 1981, in Crescent, Utah, the council got together to discuss what they should do, the AUB council. Now, you had some who had never received an endowment, and then you had some that had been endowed in the church, you know, before the fundamentalist movement. So they met separately. Those who could wear temple robes met in one room, and those who had not met in another, but they met in prayer with a common purpose in separate rooms. And then they got together and they discussed what they wanted to do. And they wrote on a little piece of paper what they should do. The consensus was that they should go forward and start doing endowments. Well, once they reached a consensus, then Owen Allred, in front of everybody, starts receiving a revelation. They write this down. And basically, you know, I I don't know the 
the revelation off of the top of my head, but basically what it says was the Lord is saying to them, I've waited long for you to come to me in this manner. And then he gives them instructions to start doing the work of the temple in its fullness. So these guys didn't have any endowment work. They didn't have any manuscripts that showed them how to do an endowment. So they started searching from other sources. And, you know, there's a, there's a story that goes around that Fred Collier, who had received his blessings under Russell Barron, sold the endowment to the AUB for $3,000. You know, usually people will tell this story that, you know, with a little bit of derision saying, look, the AUB had to buy their endowment from Fred Collier. And I always say, so what? You know, were these guys expected to do things from memory from like, you know, 40 years previous? (laughs) They, at that point, started talking to other sources, trying to put together an endowment, you know, put together the ceremony so that they could start officiating in it. And, and one of the people that they talked to was uh, Robert Black. And Robert Black sat down and explained the second anointing to Owen Allred and Joseph Thompson. And they were flabbergasted. They had never heard this doctrine before. And by the way, this just isn't hearsay because I personally talked to, talked to Joseph Thompson before his death. And he told me that that he didn't understand the endowment and didn't know what it was previous to this point. It had to be taught to him. It had to be explained to him. And uh, Robert Black at this time offered to give the endowment to these men, but they refused because, you know, they didn't really, they didn't really recognize any authority that Robert might have. And you have to remember that there was kind of an, a stigma of associating with those from the LeBaron line because of Ervold's murder of uh, Rulin Allred. Okay, so Robert Ray Black, let's just give a little primer into who he is and where he comes from. Uh, Obviously, he was living in the St. Louis area, had uh, been known to sell LDS books, if I'm remembering correctly. He uh, got in trouble with the church, even all the way back then before he became uh, involved with the fundamentalist movement eventually relocated to Utah, came into contact with uh, Ross LeBaron, received his teachings, received his ordinances from Robert Black, or excuse me, from, from uh, he received teachings and received his blessings from Ross LeBaron. Uh, and at that point, he was associating with uh, Red Collier, uh, Tom Green, Dwayne Hafen, and a lot of the other men who had Trace their priesthood from uh, to Russell Barron. Well, let's just back up. So he got. I, I'm more interested in his background in the LDS Church. So what it seems to me is early fundamentalism. They of course all come from the Brighamite Church. They break off early in the 20s or 30s. But a lot of these guys in the 70s go through as LDS members and break off then. Is it because of the priesthood ban? Would you that was lifted? Is that what you would attribute it to? I would attribute the priesthood ban uh, to to other fundamentalist movements, not so much the LeBaron movement. Uh, and if you'll talk, uh, I've talked on this issue with Robert Black before, that he has reservations about uh, even accepting the priesthood ban, as do uh, some of the others who, uh, who followed after Ross LeBaron. I would say that they have more of an issue 
with the Brighamite organization altogether because they trace their authority back before Brigham Young. They trace it back to Benjamin F. Johnson, who received it directly from the hands of uh, the prophet Joseph Smith. So all along, they have kind of had issues with a lot of uh, Brigham Young's uh, teachings and a lot of Brigham Young's policies to begin with. So it's not necessarily just about the priesthood ban. It's about it's about Brigham Young in general, I would say. Okay, that's helpful. And something that I think is unusual in a lot of fundamental circles. So Robert talks in his interview about how he is going through the gospel, the LDS church. Um, he's serving high leadership callings. He's teaching. He's doing these firesides. And eventually he sort of you know, comes in contact with Ross LeBaron. So he's one of the guys, and we're going to talk about him, but um, I want to talk about some of the other guys that he, he's going to mention a bunch of people in his interview that we don't really have any context for. So why don't we start going down that list of men that become really important during this time? Can we start with the singer swap uh, story, which is a lot to talk yeah. about? Yeah. Now, now remind me, what did he, what was he, what was he saying? Uh, what was his connection to? I mean, I know that that kind of catalyzed him, but what was his connect, uh, connection to, to the singers? So he talks about, in the interview, being there to basically protect the family. I mean, he he t- tells this sort of f- fantastical story about sneaking into the morgue. That was kind of like my first time hearing a lot of those stories, too. <laughs> well, can so, you just uh, tell us who Adam I wish Singer I, I is wish. and his son? Just tell us um, a basic overview of who these guys are. You don't have to have their connection with Robert Ray. Just what do we know about them? Okay, well, in the 1970s, you had John Singer, who uh, had gotten in trouble with the authorities. He was uh, he was a polygamist who was living in the Salt Lake area. And he got into uh, trouble with the authorities because he, uh, over homeschooling, he, in essence, had kept his kids home from public school. And they sent officers to his house to discuss him about it. And what happened afterwards is a matter of controversy. But he was walking away from the officers back into his house and was shot several times in the back and killed. This event was important to me because as a young boy, this was, uh, you know, I was living in Utah at the time, and this was all over the news back then. This is one of my first experiences with Mormon fundamentalists being in the media in a negative connotation. After that, some of his relatives and his son-in-law with the last name of Swap, in retribution, wound up, I think, in Wasatch County, bombing a church, an LDS church building as a sort of statement. And what ensued to that was lengthy standoff between them and the law that eventually read, led to their arrest and their imprisonment. Yeah, this was, this was one of the stories that Robert, Robert brought up to us. And this, I think, was my first time encountering this idea. So I was unaware of this whole homeschooling fight with with its intersection with fundamentalism. So as episodes go on, we're going to explore this because, of course, homeschooling is not new to Mormon fundamentalists. A lot of them do homeschool their own children. I didn't realize that fundamentalism was one of the catalysts to getting the laws changed and sort of altered in Utah. And so this is a huge part of it. 
Another thing that I didn't realize was there was this huge anti-tax movement that started, I would say, maybe didn't start, but really sort of gains a lot of momentum in the 1970s. And we see it now still in things like, you know, the group like the Bundys or some of these other groups that we're going to talk about later on. But it's really tied in with Mormon fundamentalism. Moroni, why do you think these ideas of no tax and homeschooling are so important to a lot of fundamentalist uh, believers? Well, I think that ultimately it goes back that one of the things that commonly is believed among Mormon fundamentalists and also early, early Mormons is the concept of the kingdom of God, that they were, they were talking about fleeing to Utah even back in the days of Nauvoo so that they could have autonomy from the U.S. government to make their own laws, to enact their own policies. And, you know, there is a strong sense among Mormon fundamentalists that they pertain more to the kingdom of God rather than to the United States of America. And so any laws that they see as unjust are actions that are being uh, perpetrated upon them by a realistically a foreign a governmental body that they have a hard time recognizing to begin with. Okay, so it's sort of in line with this tension that we talk about in the podcast, this, you know, anti-government thing going on. But what's hard for me to also reconcile is a lot of these people are still, like, consider themselves the most patriotic, right? They're, like, wearing the American flag on their hats and their T-shirts. And yet a lot of them are anti-big government. It's still, it's still a thing that I'm trying to understand as I, as I pick this apart. But yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about the singer swap incident, which of course is very dramatic. And Robert Ray Black will mention how he was involved, how, well, I, I would, I want to ruin it for you. And even though the audio is really rough on the Robert Ray Black interview, he has some dramatic intersections with that story. Okay. Let's talk about some of the other people involved at this time. So D. Wayne Hafen, who I've met, do you want to tell us about him a little bit? Yeah. Dwayne Hafen, uh, I have to say, is a jewel of a man. I really love and respect respect that guy. He has a lot of ties to, you know, people in other parts of the fundamentalist community. Basically, Dwayne was called by Ross to preside in Mexico. So he, in essence, is Ross LeBaron's representative south of the border. He has uh, spent a lot of his life down with diff communities in Mexico. He had, at, at least that I, uh, you know, that I know, at least he had two Mexican wives, as uh, many children and grandchildren that are of the Mexican lineage. But, you know, he's always been super kind to me. And he's come to visit me here in my house in, in uh, Concho and but he was one of the men that received blessings and teachings under the hands of Ross. Okay. And so he's considered, (laughs) yeah, no. So Robert talks about this too. And I don't know, I don't remember if we recorded this or not, but really according to Robert's way of thinking, there are only a few men that have these accurate ceiling powers and understandings of the endowment. And Dwayne is one of those, correct? Yes. Yeah. Dwayne, Dwayne is one of those. But yeah, I I remember that in our discussion with Robert, he kind of intimated that there were others who had not received complete endowments. And he never really explained to us us what the difference was and why some had not received as much as others, but he did kind of hint at that. 
Okay, perfect. So we'll we'll be talking about him. Maybe I should get him on for an interview since he's just very, you know, he's uh, very friendly and probably would be willing to do an interview. Accessible. Accessible. That's the word I want. Okay, how about Coley and Fred Collier and all these guys? Okay, Coley Christensen, I don't know a whole lot about him, but I know that he was one of the ones who was involved with Ross. He had published a book back in the 1980s that was actually very instrumental in bringing my family to Mormon fundamentalism, and it was called The Adam God Maze. And uh, he wrote this book discussing discussing uh, the Adam God doctrine. I know that he was a doctor, that he lived in the Mesa area, that he became involved with, with the movement under, under Ross LeBaron as well. And uh, my dad had made contact with him shortly after he had been excommunicated from the LDS church. He lost his membership over writing that book. Fred Collier was one of the first to get involved with Ross LeBaron. I think that it was even in the 1960s, but uh, he published a series of books like The Teachings of Brigham Young, Unpublished Revelations. Uh, these books are invaluable to Mormon fundamentalists, no matter what strain of fundamentalist you are, because they're compilations of uh, teachings and revelations that are not widely circulated in the mainstream church, and he's done invaluable research. I don't know much about his church. I know that he has his own church with his own following. He claims that he is the one anointed and appointed, that uh, he is the only one of of those who received blessings under Ross that really has, you know, authority to to perpetuate things. He views himself as Ross's heir. Other than that, I don't know much about him. Then there was uh, Tom Green. Tom Green became prominent in the news back in the 1990s, went before the media with his family. He had a, a large family of wives, children, did several interviews. And then wound up serving a prison term for, I think, five years, uh, could be more, because he had taken an underage wife. I don't really know where he stands now. I, I don't really know him personally, but I know that he's around, he's online, he's on some of the discussion groups on one, so, but I don't know how involved he is anymore with fundamentalism. But uh, he also was one of the disciples of Ross LeBaron. Okay, are there any other of these guys that we need to know about before I ask you some general questions? No, I think those are the key players. There's several, several others. Do you just that, want to throw uh, out some names? And you know, can... for instance, each one, of these, uh, each one of these men have had other men sealed to them as, you know, through the law of adoption. You know, each one of these men are patriarchs and uh, have had men sealed to their families. But uh, I think that those are the main, the key players right there. Okay, so a lot of these do sprout up in the 70s. Why, why this time period? Starting in the 1970s, you saw a lot of key changes of policy in the church. You know, there were, there were a lot of things that were going on in American politics that caused a lot of people to question, you know, the status quo. But uh, in the LDS church, you know, you had, you had the priesthood ban being lifted. You had numerous... Uh, changes that came about in uh, things like the temple garment. In the 1980s, you saw the first round of changes in the temple endowment. And really, it's not just the LeBaron movement that saw a proliferation, so to speak. It was uh, a lot of other groups saw growth 
you know, the AUB saw tremendous growth during the 19, uh, late 1970s and the early 1980s. And I think it was the church at that point was starting to go more progressive. And according to the view of most modern uh, uh, Mormon fundamentalists, the church was making concessions to society to become more palatable, to become more acceptable to, to mainstream society. And uh, so you saw a lot of people in the church becoming disaffected and starting to gravitate towards these uh, fringe movements, such as uh, the LeBaron movement, such as the AUB, a lot of independence. A lot of them uh, saw their ranks start to swell during this time period because of these changes. Again, why? Let's talk about Ross LeBaron again. I know you already sort of set this up for us, but again, he was living in a shed. He was he was such a strange sort of eccentric character. And while he did come from the LeBaron group, which again is this sort of mysticism with early legitimate uh, Mormon Mexican credibility, he's still such an interesting character. And I know we're going to do an episode on him, but why do you think it was him? Um, why do you think he's the guy that everybody really thought had, had it all figured out? I don't know. You know, he was uh, quite an, uh, an eccentric character. And I should tell a little story right now. When, when uh, Ross was involved with the priesthood movement back in the 1940s and the 1950s, he was already making claims at that point to, uh, he was alluding to the fact that he held greater priesthood. And I've, in, in my podcast interview with you, I told you a little bit about my great-grandfather Moroni Jessup, who was kind of like the Jay Golden Kimball of the fundamentalist movement. He had a salty tongue, uh, swore a lot, kind of a cowboy figure. Well, um, he had a confrontation once with uh, Ross LeBaron. And he said, Ross said to everybody, he said, uh, with all the priesthood that I hold, do you suppose that if I were to fall, that I would become a son of perdition? And uh, my great-grandfather Moroni answered, no, but I think you could be a son of a bitch. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think the thing that attracted a lot of people to Ross was that his doctrine was sound. It made sense. He explained things like like fullness of priesthood. And, you know, in essence, according to the order that Ross taught, the Joseph, uh, the Joseph Smith in Nauvoo was teaching priesthood keys to be something like a fraternal order, a holy order, so to speak, that, uh, that uh, all men had the opportunity, not just, not just the elite, not just the, the quorums of the 12 and the, the high orders of the priesthood, but all men could come and receive the same blessings and the same authority that Joseph Smith had. And I think that that was kind of the appeal that Joseph Smith had was that he had something that the everyday man could eventually attain to in this life. He had something that, that wasn't reserved just for the elite or the leadership. He had something that, that every man could attain to. And I think that Ross kind of embodied that a little bit, that Ross was, was uh, salt of the earth. Yeah, he was a little weird, but when he started expanding doctrine, it made sense to a lot of these men. You know, it brought the gospel and priesthood authority and keys down to a grassroots level. And I think that's why a lot of these men were attracted to what Ross had to say. And you talk to Robert, and he'll admit that that Robert, oh, he'll admit that Ross was kind of a weird duck. And yet, 
these men still honored him as a father in the priesthood. Yeah, so again, it goes to this this thing we've been talking about exploring lately on the podcast, which is this idea of prophets. You know, if you grow up in the LDS church, especially in the modern LDS church, post uh, Heber J. Grant, we have this issue, this idea of prophets of sort of these corporatized business suits, clean cut, no beards, a little bit different than early prophets. And certainly the definition that most people would understand as a prophet who is someone a little odd, someone a little strange. You know, a lot of early ancient prophets sort of wandered around like crazy people in the wilderness. And so would you say that fundamentalists have more flexibility for that understanding of a prophet? Yeah. Like you said, in the LDS church, the leaders are unapproachable. I mean, if you ever get a chance to speak to one of them, it's a, it's a rare thing indeed. But, but on this level, with the fundamentalists, you're, you're rubbing shoulders with your prophet. You're going to work projects with him. You're speaking to him every day after meeting. You're receiving blessings by him placing his hands directly on your head. It, it makes it, it makes all of those things that we consider so far off and, or celestial even that much closer to you. Yeah. Okay. So if we can look at Ross LeBaron as we explore in the next few episodes in that light, I think that that will be a helpful way to understand why he's so compelling. Is there anything else, Moroni, that you want to sure. say about any of these guys before we let you go? I really enjoyed meeting with Robert. You know, I kind of view Robert in the same way that a lot of people view uh, Ross. That you know, Robert is kind of a, a strange and controversial figure. But you know what? He is. He's uh, intelligent. He's undoubtedly intelligent. And I've always viewed him as as quote knowing his stuff when it comes to the fullness of the gospel. He's really knowledgeable. And I've always found his teachings to be sound, even though I come from a different line of priesthood than he does. He's somebody that I really do view as as a uh, mentor. And as you can hear in the interview, he's not really in the best of health. Whatever the case, I was really glad to be able to attend this interview with you and to, and to uh, see him speak and, you know, hear his life story. Yeah, and that's the only unfortunate thing about it. I, I think um, I brought my computer just as a side note. I, I wasn't expecting to do an interview, and so we just captured the audio as we could, but it's not great, which is unfortunate because yeah. he has some pretty fascinating stories to tell. But hopefully as we dive into his story a little bit, people will understand it a little more, and I think that this interview will give them some context. So, Moroni, thanks again for all you do. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on again, Lindsay. Be sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, 
It comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.